Well, I didn't even have to say good morning. Everyone quieted down. Um, good morning. Thank you. Good morning, Steve. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds, uh, the last Wednesday in January of 2018, the 31st. Um, I have to say I can't tell you what is next week for Grand Rounds, and our Grand Rounds committee, I think, is involved with the, <clears throat> the house staff retreat, the resident retreat that's off-site off today. Um, so we feel, I think, we're missing the presence of our residents. But that said, we have an excellent... An excellent speaker invited to, to join us from NYU, a general pediatrician that was invited by the Coop Institute and sponsored by the C. Everett Coop Institute here at Dartmouth. So the director, Jim Sargent, is going to introduce uh, Dr. Yin. Yeah, thanks. I'll, I'll say just a, a, one, just a brief comment about the Coop Institute. Um, um, the Coop Institute has been chosen by the dean to um, be part of the uh, uh, fundraising campaign that's going to start in April. So we've really honed our uh, um, website and our um, mission statement. And uh, so I, I encourage you to go to, the, uh, go to the website, take a look at the mission statement, take a look at um, what we're about. Um, what we're really about is uh, the recognition that um, traditional medicine is not going to solve our chronic disease epidemic and that um, in order to um, really address the uh, heart disease and the cancers that our adult population faces, that we have to address uh, the behaviors and especially the products that people uh, consume. Um, so um, uh, what we're really interested in is taking the um, discussion away from the individual behavior and talking about the corporate behavior that lands the product in the um, lap of the patient, which they then use and uh, ultimately cause the chronic disease. So um, take a look at the um, take a look at the website. We've worked really hard on it, and um, um, I hope to um, um, that that you know we'll we'll be successful in being able to fundraise for some of the uh, projects that we want to do. Um, Today we have um, a really talented um, young investigator from NYU, Shona Lin. Um, Shona um, started uh, at MIT, um, and she, where she got her BS in biology in 1997, but then she went uh, to University of Rochester, where she got her MD degree, um, and she's been at uh, NYU since 2007, lucky NYU, in the Department of Pedi uh, General Pediatrics. Um, she sees patients uh, um, in a residency clinic at uh, Bellevue Hospital, and um, her research to date has really focused on communicating um, um, with um, low literacy populations, particularly around um, medications. And what she's found is that um, um, our communications aren't optimal, and there are a lot of medication errors. And, and, and what she really specializes in is how to um, um, deliver um, the messages and deliver the equipment in a way that um, that it minimizes these medication errors. But she's also now um, um, starting to work in areas that are um, uh, moving away from medicine. She's got a uh, NIH grant to look at uh, uh, childhood obesity, and, and that's about communicating with parents about what kids eat and their activities. So um, she's uh, very talented, very well-funded. We're very excited to have her here to talk to us today. Thank you very much for coming down from New York, Shona.
All right. Thank you so much for having me here. Okay. So I'm excited to be sharing with you some of the work that I've been doing around health literacy and specifically around medication errors. And I have no conflicts of interest to disclose. Let me know if you can't hear me well. Okay, so just a brief overview of what I'll be talking about. I'm going to first uh, give a brief introduction to health literacy um, and the issue of medication errors in children, um, shift to talk about some provider communication best practices, um, then uh, talk about a few issues that are unique to pediatrics and liquid medication administration, including dosing tools and units of measurement, um, talk a little bit about labeling, prescription, and OTC products, and end with some, some final thoughts. So we have a lot, a lot to talk about. Um, first, this concept of health literacy. Uh, I think many of you are familiar with this concept, um, health literacy referring to um, an individual's ability to understand, to process health information, to make informed uh, health decisions. Um, it includes the ability to access and to navigate the healthcare system. Um, so being able to, for example, fill out the forms to apply for health insurance. When I think about health literacy, I think uh, beyond just individual um, and the individual abilities, um, I think about health literacy being at the intersection point um, between what the individual brings to the table, so in that yellow arrow here, the skills and the abilities of individuals, and then I think about the red arrow, so that's, that's us, the healthcare system, the healthcare providers, and the demands and the complexities of the tasks that we as a healthcare system, we as healthcare providers, um, bring to the table. So to dive into that model a little bit deeper, um, you can see in the yellow, these are the, what, what I mean by individual capacities. So um, what this means is individuals' uh, prose literacy skills, their ability to read continuous text from like the handouts that we give them. Um, it has to do with quantitative literacy, so it has to do with the ability to understand numbers, risks and benefits, um, understand dosing, etc. Um, it has to do with their document literacy, so their ability to kind of pull out information from tables or from things like nutrition labels or prescription labels. Um, people are bringing in their, their uh, conceptual knowledge of health and healthcare. And then we as a healthcare system, you can see this in red, um, we're bringing in messages, health messages for patients, spoken messages, printed messages, and at the intersection point is health literacy. And when we can um, really optimize this, this relationship, um, that's where we can see um, new knowledge, um, improved attitudes, greater self-efficacy, behavior change, and ultimately the hope is improved health outcomes. So there's a growing body of literature um, which has really established the importance of this issue of health literacy. And it has shown that low health literacy is linked to significant uh, issues like poor knowledge and skills, worse health behaviors, um, worse health outcomes, including greater mortality, as well as suboptimal health services use. And health literacy is thought to cost the health system over $100 billion a year. So there's some data about the prevalence of health literacy in the U.S., and um, we did analysis looking specifically at parents. Parents overall have better health literacy levels, although really there's quite a large percentage of parents who have low health literacy, and you can see that in the orange and in the, the yellow piece, uh, the orange and the red pieces of the pie here, um, about 30% or over 21 million parents fall into the basic or below basic health literacy levels. But I think what's also really important to note from this pie chart is that only 15% of parents fall into that green pie, piece of the pie. Um, that's the proficient uh, health literacy. Um, so that basically shows that the vast majority of parents that we're seeing in the hospital um, are uh, and, and in our clinics are uh, facing health literacy challenges. 
I think another important thing I like to always point out is that I think of health literacy as a, a, a state rather than a trait. So that means your health literacy level can, can, um, can, can change based on circumstances. So when you have a sick child in the hospital, you're stressed, your health literacy levels can suffer. So thinking about this in the context of medications, I want you to put yourselves in the shoes of a parent, a parent who's trying to figure out how to give a medication correctly, and I wanna walk you through some of the steps. Um, what are the challenges that the parents are facing in the clinic, in the ED, in the hospital, which is on the right side, and then on the pharmacy, on, which is on, uh, well, that's on the left side, and the pharmacy is on the right side. Okay, so we know from prior studies um, that phys physician counseling is often incomplete. We're not giving them all the information, like the duration or the frequency of the medicine. We know that pediatricians often don't use more of the optimal communication strategies we recommend, like teach back, for example. Um, we know that dosing tools, um, when they're used, can really reduce medication errors, but that the vast majority of providers are often not giving um, these dosing tools to patients um, when they send them home. We know from studies looking at prescriptions um, that uh, oftentimes the prescriptions are missing information and that can lead to confusion from parents. We know that oftentimes we're sending parents home without written information and written information has been found to really help supplement verbal counseling can really help parents when they go home. What about in the pharmacist side? So, Pharmacies, um, you would hope, are doing some of the counseling, but I think we're all familiar with the process of going to the pharmacy and waiving our right to uh, get counseled, and we walk out without any sort of counseling, and that's happening with our patients as well. You might think that the pharmacist is giving out a dosing tool, um, but studies have shown um, that pharmacists as well don't uh, give out tools to our patients, and uh, so that leaves patients to go home and reach for, potentially reach for that kitchen spoon. We know from prior studies uh, that bottle labels are often not patient-centered and they're confusing. And I'm citing some research from over a decade ago, but that's really where um, this focus on the suboptimal labels began with um, folks uh, like Mike Wolf, Will Shrink, and others who really started to question whether the labels that we have out there are optimal and patient-centered. And so what they did was they did a very simple study where they uh, went to multiple different pharmacies across the country, they filled identical prescriptions, they looked at what uh, labels looked like and were they patient-centered. And what they found was the answer was no. Um, things that were in color, things were, that were in bold, were actually things that were more important for the pharmacy or uh, pharmacist rather than for the patient. They also started doing some other studies that really drew attention to the fact that our labels are not designed well. Um, you can see these are common label instructions. They tested understanding at multiple sites, patients across health literacy levels, and they looked at SIGs that we're all familiar with, things like take one teaspoonful by mouth three times daily, take one tablet by mouth twice daily for seven days. We still see these SIGs out there. Um, and one in four, um, one in three, so large percentages were misunderstanding these kind of instructions. And those with low health literacy are at greatest risk. What about the materials that are stapled to the bag, the bag that you take home from the pharmacy? I think we're all familiar with those. Do you read them? Um, there have been studies looking at those as well, finding that those are written at the 10th to 12th grade reading level, so it's much too high for the average um, US um, uh, uh, individual, and usually we're recommending a sixth to eighth grade level. So you can imagine there's lots of health literacy challenges as families are trying to navigate and understand how to give medication instructions. So I think we all know that medication um, use is very common in pediatrics, and more than half of U.S. children are taking one or more medicines in a given week. 
Um, and it's not that surprising, given all the health literacy challenges, that over 40% of parents are making errors. They're giving incorrect doses of medicine. We know that while adverse drug events are not that common, um, medication administration errors account for the vast majority of preventable adverse drug events. We particularly worry about kids with chronic conditions, kids with cancer, sickle cell. In those populations, um, error rates are high, and uh, those, in those populations and with those medicines, the potential for harm is great. Um, drug administration is in a, one of the most common stages of error, showing that we really should try to target and help uh, figure out how we as providers can support our patients. The poison control centers keep track of the calls that happen around medication errors in children, and you can see some of the uh, scenarios uh, that are involved. Giving an incorrect dose, giving medications too frequently, giving medicines through the wrong route, confused, confusing uh, 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 units of measure, incorrect formulations or concentrations, issues with dosing tools like dosing cups, using more than one product that has the same active ingredient, and then confusion around things like decimals leading to tenfold dosing errors. Go back. Sure. The slide where it mentioned cancer, 50%. One more. Oh, sorry. I'm going backwards. Yeah. yeah. Would you just elaborate on that? Nearly 50%. I'll just say I believe it. So we have actually nurses in our clinic who review the medications, but even with that, every single um, visit, we have errors. Without a doubt. Yeah, it's very, it's so, it, there's, the instructions are so complex, I think, sometimes, and you're taking multiple medicines, and that confounds the issue, and so uh, there's, there's, there's lots of places where um, confusion can happen and errors can happen. Thank you. So uh, the, the CDC keeps track of um, ED visits for medication overdoses, over 5,000 um, visits per year for overdoses, most commonly around dosing errors, decimal errors, unit of measure confusion. Um, some of the medications that are involved include things like um, commonly prescribed, commonly used and prescribed medications or medications being used over the counter like analgesics, cough and cold preparations, antibiotics, biotics. Also a few drug classes here that are of note include CNS drugs, cardiovascular and GI medications. Um, but I think it's important to remember it's not just about overdosing, it's also about underdosing. Um, so when you underdose, um, you can have issues with therapeutic failure, that can lead to, for example, poorly treated fever. That leads people back to the emergency department, et cetera. Um, so I'd like to focus both on overdoses as well as underdosing. So in kids, we have this unique situation where we, are, uh, we rely on liquid medications very heavily. And so it's not that surprising that liquid formulations are involved in over 80% of pediatric medication errors. Um, some of the sources of parent confusion around liquid medicines uh, focus around dosing tools. So a lot of parents don't realize that they shouldn't be using kitchen spoons, which uh, uh, vary very widely, as you, we all know, um, in our kitchen drawers. They vary very widely in size and shape. Um, and even if they do know to use a standard dosing tool, they're often not using those tools correctly. And I'll be talking about that in a minute. Um, units of measurement is another issue that's unique with liquid medicines. Um, and we use different terms like milliliter, teaspoon, and tablespoon. We don't really even think about it when we use these terms. Um, but when they get confused, that can lead to multifold errors. So this leads us to, to think about what we as providers might be able to do. And um, 
as you're thinking, as we've been thinking about health literacy-informed interventions to improve provider counseling, um, there's been more work done in adults than in, than in pediatrics. Um, some of the work in adults, for example, have used these pictographic uh, visual medication schedules, and that has um, shown improvements, for example, in time to anticoagulation control. Um, there are folks, uh, including Mike Wolf's team at Northwestern, that are looking at um, linking these patient-specific medication instruction sheets, um, using visuals um, on the sheets uh, to help support parent understanding. But really, there have been few interventions um, for pediatrics and the unique uh, challenges of dosing liquid medicines. And so um, that was uh, one of the things that we set out to do, is try to think about what sort of intervention we could design. Um, so we used uh, evidence-based best practices in health communication. So we tried to incorporate concepts like um, using plain language, because we know that um, that really helps improve understanding. Um, using pictograms, because um, that has been found to be associated with improved knowledge and adherence and self-management. Um, incorporating the concept of demonstration. Um, so when you demonstrate the dose, that can help support um, parent learning. Teach back and show back. Um, those uh, um, have been recommended as top safety practices by the AHRQ. So asking a patient to say in their own words um, or physically demonstrate um, the steps of, 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 uh, of an activity. Uh, and uh, that has been found to be associated with improved understanding, including improved glycemic control. And finally, provision of a dosing tool. So given, giving parents a tool to take home, like an oral syringe, um, to, so that they uh, avoid those kitchen spoons. So the intervention we developed is called HelpX. Um, and HelpX grew out of the Health Education and Literacy for Parents program, a health literacy program in a public hospital in New York City where I work. Um, and uh, these are patient and medication-specific pictogram-based instruction sheets. You can see um, this second sheet here is uh, the one that uh, I think is really the most important part of the tool, um, which includes a dosing diagram showing exactly how much to give. There's also a place where you indicate when the medication starts, the number of doses. Um, there's a log uh, that helps parents keep track of the medicine. Um, and it's meant to, these sheets are meant to be used as a framework for counseling. Um, we recommend demonstration and teach back, like I, like I said, giving a dosing tool. And it's really not meant to add additional time to counseling, um, but really meant to make counseling more effective. And so as my fellowship project, we actually uh, uh, embarked on a randomized control trial to look at the efficacy of Helpix. Um, and uh, so we rolled parents, English and Spanish-speaking parents of young kids, prescribed liquid medicines in the emergency department. Um, and what we found, um, we looked at uh, outcomes of dosing error. Um, that was one of our main things. Um, we had parents come back and dose medicines in front of us um, using the dosing tool they used at home or um, from a, a standard kit that we had. And we found high rates of error, about 50%, so consistent with what other people have found, high rates of error. Um, and then with the help picks intervention, we found just 5% uh, uh, of parents making errors. Um, we uh, determined uh, an error. We defined an error as greater than 20% deviation. So um, that means if someone was prescribed a 5 ml dose, if they are dosed more than 6 or less than um, 4, they were considered to have made an error. We also looked at non-adherence, um, which was defined as within uh, not giving within 20% of the expected number of total doses, and we also saw improvement. So 40% of parents were making non were non-adherent uh, before uh, in the standard care group, um, and then in the HelpX group it was 9%. So really um, dramatic improvements. Um, but I wanted to note that this is an efficacy study. So this was done under research conditions. I was down there uh, doing the intervention with families. Um, we made sure um, uh, that uh, they were getting demonstration, they were getting teach back, they were getting show back, they got the dosing tool. Um, and so we wanted to see what would happen if we put this into the hands of providers. 
Was the was the showback how you ascertained the error? How did you ascertain an error in dosing? Um, so we had them come back actually after they had uh, after they had gone home already and they had been giving the medicines. So we waited towards when they were done with the medication course. We had them come back in person and show us how they dosed. So, um, so so we uh, worked with the IT folks at NYU and uh, at the public hospital system to design a web-based application. Um, so uh, we linked it to the EMR. So when prescribe when uh, someone was prescribing a medication, they could generate these uh, instruction sheets and use it at the point of care. And, and we developed these in English and Spanish. Um, and uh, so we did a pre-post implementation study. So we did this at two public hospital pediatric emergency departments. One site got the intervention, one site uh, um, and, uh, uh, did not, and we got data uh, pre-implementation and post-implementation. And what did we find? So. Um, so providers had, the, so they had the option of whether they wanted to generate the sheets or not. So about 60% uh, of the time, they did generate the sheets, which we were quite excited about, although we wish it was higher than that. Um, but, and we also looked at uh, uh, provider use of communication best practices, um, pre and post implementation. And we found some really dramatic differences there. And this is with a very brief training that we did with providers um, before uh, we rolled out HelpX. Um, so we found improvements in Providers' use of pictures and drawings, so one versus 37%. Dose demonstration went from 33 to 59%. Teach back, 8 to 24%. So much improved, but still a lot of people not using those skills. Show back, 13 to 33%. And then provision of dosing tools went from 25% to 79%. So we made sure dosing tools were available to be given out, and providers clearly bought into that. We looked at dosing errors as well. Um, and we saw improvements there. Um, you, saw, you can see here 37% of parents making errors compared to 16%. Um, and those who got the HelpX sheets um, had a specially decreased rate of error. Um, those who did not get HelpX, you can see, still had reductions in the error rate. And I think that's in part because providers were really using um, imp uh, improved uh, communication um, with the patients. So. Um, so now we're, we're um, in the midst of, of, of um, trying to figure out how we can further scale up um, the, the intervention, and uh, we're uh, trying to see how we can make this uh, something that can be uh, used uh, across many different uh, sites. I'm going to shift gears, and I'm going to talk about dosing tools. Um, and uh, many of you um, haven't really thought much about dosing tools. Um, I didn't, I know, when I first started working on this research. But then as I started diving into the work, um, I began to realize the importance of, of the tools that we're giving to patients um, and uh, whether we're setting people up to fail when, they're, when uh, we're asking them to give um, medications. Uh, so errors with dosing tools can have serious implications. Um, this was something that happened in our hospital, um, a Mexican mom of a seven-month-old in the emergency room, third visit in a month with recurrent febrile seizures. Um, it turns out that the mom was giving a drop of acetaminophen. I don't know if you guys remember when we used to have those infant droppers. She was giving a drop instead of a dropper full, and, uh, and that has potential implications. Here's another case report that Institute for Safe Medication Practices um, keeps track of these sorts of um, cases when something happens like this. Uh, so uh, there was a fatality when a dosing cup with DRAMS was used, and there was confusion between milliliter and DRAMS, and this was with morphine, and this was with a provider. So a provider actually mixed up units of measure, and that led to a significant impact. 
Um, this is another example of how we're setting up our patients to fail. Um, inconsistency between units being used on dosing tools and prescription instructions. Um, this got the attention of the New England Journal a number of years ago. Um, a six-year-old, um, H1N1 flu, given a prescription for Tamiflu. Um, they uh, got instructions for a three-quarter teaspoon, two times a day. And they got a syringe that came with that package, 30, 45, 16 milligrams. Um, and they didn't know what to do. And luckily, they called a friend who knew Ruth Parker, who is one of the gurus uh, of uh, health literacy world. And she emailed me and was like, look, this is what happened. What's the dose? Um, and it, you know, we can do that calculation. I think you know, we're used to doing all sorts of calculations and figure out that her dose is 45 milligrams. But you can see how, how um, you know, we, we are really um, presenting a lot of health literacy challenges to families in the way that we're, we're giving uh, uh, medications, uh, instructions. So back in um, 2009, the FDA uh, started focusing on dosing devices more uh, um, as they were getting more reports of errors with dosing devices. And so they issued this guidance for in industry. And um, you know, guidance is a lot is easier for, F for FDA to issue than regulation, because regulation takes a lot more time. But they did have some recommendations around dosing tools. Um, they thought it would be important to have dosing tools included with all liquid medicines. Um, they made some recommendations about units of, of measure that units should actually match from what's on the label in the dosing tool. Before this, this was never actually a recommendation, which is pretty shocking, but that's the state of, of, of the world. Um, um, they recommended uh, uh, that same abbreviations should be used on labels and dosing tools. Um, they recommended some things around decimal points, so avoiding the use of trailing zeros, for example. Um, they talked about fractions and how fractions might, might be confusing. Um, and they talked about dosing devices that had too many, too many markings because that had caused some problems in the past. So when we became aware of this guidance, um, what, what a group of us realized was really there's no baseline data. And how do we know we're making progress um, and making changes and moving in the right direction if we don't have any baseline data? So what a group of us did, myself, Mike Wolf, um, Bernard Dreyer, uh, uh, we worked together um, to gather a sample of the top 200 top-selling medications and try to get some baseline data. What we found was some really interesting things. We found that one in four liquid medicines did not include a dosing tool. We found that 99% of the time, there was inconsistency between label directions and the markings on the tool. So 99%, that's very, very common. Um, and this uh, was one example. This is the worst example, I have to say, but an example of, of what we found. Um, so you can see here, um, this is uh, uh, the directions. Um, it recommends one teaspoon or two teaspoons. And this is the dosing tool that came with the, with the medication. So it's pretty crazy. Uh, you can see there were fluid ounces, there's drams, there's cc's, um, there's milliliters. Here is the tablespoon, uh, two TBS per tablespoon, one TBS, one DSSP, which is apparently a dessert spoonful. I had not heard of that before, <laughs> did this study. Um, and then there's a half TSP. And you can notice here that there's no two teaspoon mark, actually. It's two tablespoons. So that, um, could increase someone's odds of making a threefold dosing error. So you can imagine this got a lot of press, um, a lot of attention to this issue. There was even someone who proposed an act in Congress, um, although that ultimately did not get passed. Um, but manufacturers um, began making changes to their labeling, which is really exciting to see. And uh, 
you know, a few years later when there was a follow-up study, there did seem to be some improvements in the labeling, although I have to say, even if 57% adhere, that means there's still 43% that did not adhere with top uh, recommendations. So, um, so I'm hoping that, you know, slowly over time, um, um, there'll be more and more improvements in the labels. But one thing that was not addressed in the FDA guidance was this issue of dosing tools and the type of tool. What tools should we be recommending um, patients uh, use? Um, there's a lot of variability in what we do, what we give out in the ED. Um, most of the time, we're not giving out anything, but um, when we are, we're giving out syringes. In the pharmacy, there was a lot more variation. In our study, we saw people giving out cups and dosing spoons and syringes and droppers, and does it matter what they're using? Um, there was really not a lot of data to, to, um, uh, about this issue. For OTC products, mostly there were dosing cups that were included, so 80, almost over 80%, but some syringes and some droppers. So we did a study um, where we tried to get to the bottom of this, um, um, just uh, looking at uh, how parents dose with a range of tools. So we looked at dosing cups, and there were a lot of different cups available. So we used one that had printed markings that seemed clearer. There's ones with etched markings. Um, we had them dose with dosing spoons and droppers and, and then uh, oral syringes. Um, we had them dose five ml. We randomized the order in which they dosed, and we uh, looked at dosing errors. And what we found was really interesting, actually, um, that droppers, dosing spoons, oral syringes, people generally did pretty well with, but dosing cups, people did terribly with. And that includes more multifold errors, like greater than twofold errors. Um, we found that dosing cup use was associated with six to sevenfold increased odds of large errors. People were dosing, when they were trying to dose five ml, were dosing like 20-something ml um, of medication. <coughs> so very concerning. We've been able to dive into this a little bit more um, with an, a recent uh, NIH uh, study uh, where we're trying to identify best practices for labeling of medications. Um, so we're looking at dosing tools. We're also looking at units of measurement, which I'll talk th about the results about later. And we looked at pictograms as well. But these were uh, some of our findings from our experiment um, with about 2,000 mm -hmm. families where we had them dose three different doses with a cup as well as two different syringes. Um, and you can see that cups were uh, the worst. Um, you can see uh, there was a fourfold increased odds of a large error. So that's greater than two times the dose um, with a dosing cup. When you dive into it a little deeper and you look at the, the, um, the errors by dose, the dose amount, there's 2.5 ml dose, 5 and 7.5s. So we had the parents dose all those doses. Um, you can see with the smaller doses, lots more errors with a cup. The y-axis is the percent parents making an error um, here. Uh, lots more errors with a cup with a 5 ml as well compared to the syringes. Not such, so much of a difference with a 7.5 ml, so that suggests that maybe for larger doses, cups are fine. Um, but uh, this, was, this was really interesting. And then for the syringes, really no difference. So we were testing syringes with different complexity of markings, and we were curious, would that make any difference? But it actually doesn't seem to make very, many, uh, very much difference, um, whether you have 0.2 ml markings or 0.5 ml markings. We also were able to look at this issue of tool capacity and so the size of the tool um, versus the dose um, recommended. And so I guess the visuals don't look so great here, but we, um, this is just to show you that um, with a 2 ml dose, you can see there's a lot more room for error um, with cups 
and, and 10 ml syringes compared to a 5 ml syringe. Um, with a 7.5 and 10 ml dose, um, you can see where uh, there's actually um, this need to measure multiple instrument falls. So for a 7.5 ml dose, if you give a 5 ml syringe, you have to add 5 plus 2.5. That's more numeracy skills. And I know we don't, you know, we think, okay, well, this is a no-brainer. Um, but actually, you know, there are, there was a study done in a pharmacy which actually showed that 30% of the time, the tools that they give to parents um, would have required multiple um, multiple measurements of uh, multiple instrument falls of medication. So I feel like people don't think about it. They just hand a dosing tool and you're off. Um, but uh, this could be a potential um, issue. So what we found here with the 2ml dose, and you can see the, the, um, the y-axis has to do with the percent of, of with dosing errors. Uh, and you can see uh, here with cups, a lot more errors um, with the 2ml dose compared uh, to syringes. Um, and you can also see here that when you had a smaller syringe, this is a 5 ml syringe with a 2 ml dose, there was decreased error compared to with a 10 ml syringe. With the larger doses, 7.5 and 10 ml doses, we found uh, that the 5 ml syringe um, led to much, many more errors, so fourfold increased odds of error um, compared to the 10 ml syringe. Um, we also found that cups were still associated with more errors um, compared to 10 ml syringes. When you look by health literacy, what we found was really interesting. So you can see here, um, we separated parents into low health literacy, marginal, and adequate health literacy categories. Um, you can see that if you move from a 5 ml syringe to a 10 ml syringe, and this is for the 7.5 ml dose, the odds of an error um, reduces uh, five-fold. But with uh, adequate, it was still improved, but it was a two-fold um, difference. And so you can see that it's those with the low, lowest health literacy levels that are going to really benefit if you can actually give them a tool that's optimized. And I think that's, uh, uh, that, was, that was really interesting for us to find. So there's definitely some best practices around dosing tools. I think we're st we still have unanswered questions. But um, what's exciting is to see that um, there are organizations who are thinking about incorporating this, these kind of recommendations into future policies. Okay, units of measurement. So another big topic. Um, <clears throat> so as I mentioned earlier, um, we're using a lot of these terms, and we're not really thinking about it when we're when we're talking to our patients um, sometimes. And uh, so even when you're prescribing one medication, you might be hearing different units of measurement being used from different sources, and that can lead to confusion. And the Poison Control Center keeps track of these uh, calls over 10,000 per per year um, around units of measurement confusion. And unit of measurement confusion is not just an issue with, pa with patients and families, it's an issue with providers. There's um, been multiple cases where providers have um, inadvertently, like a pharmacist has inadvertently uh, dispensed something in teaspoonfuls when it should have been in milliliters, and that has definitely uh, led to uh, cases of harm and, and side effects as well as admissions to the hospital, et cetera. And these um, uh, really shows that perhaps we should be standardizing the units that we use. The CDC Protect Initiative, formed in 2008, um, has been working on just these kinds of issues. Um, they've tackled issues around standardizing dosing instructions as well as um, the, the other area they focus on is around unintentional ingestions, which is another cause for kids to get uh, into the emergency department. Um, uh, and you can see um, this is a multi-sector collaboration. So it involves public health agencies, private, private sector companies, so um, uh, drug companies like McNeil that make Tylenol, for example, were at the table, professional organizations like the AAP, the pharmacist organization, et cetera, consumer advocates and academic experts like myself um, involved. And one of the things, and kind of like low-hanging fruit, like shouldn't we at least 
try to, to simplify um, and go to ML-only dosing. And uh, you know, the main gist is that they want to prevent these multifold errors. From teaspoon to tablespoon, like I said, two, threefold errors, a milliliter to teaspoon, if you're confusing that, fivefold errors, that has contributed to cases where there's been pediatric harm. And even the terms teaspoon and tablespoon, when you say it, like give half a teaspoon and you know, twice a day, you know, that makes you want to go reach in for that kitchen spoon. Um, it just it seems to endorse it. So, but to, to make this change, to get everybody to stop using teaspoons and tablespoons, um, you got to get a lot of people on board. So that includes the physicians, the pharmacists, pharmacy software companies, the vendors of the pharmacy, patient information leaflets, the, the dosing tool manufacturers, et cetera. And one of the things that, um, uh, you know, as we were having these annual protect meetings, um, they talked about was we need more evidence. Um, and so one of the things that I decided to do was, since we were already collecting data from the HELPIC study, the pre-post implementation study I mentioned earlier, why shouldn't I just do some sub-analyses and look at this question? We were collecting um, bottles, we were looking at prescriptions, we were getting information from what parents thought the dose were, we were getting dose information on dosing errors, and so we took a look. What we found was really interesting. Um, we found that there was quite a bit of variability in the units used on the prescription, on the bottle label, and by the parent. Um, for example, you can see here for teaspoons, you would expect all of these percentages to be about the same, but actually there were differences. And when you dive into it, we found that over a third of the time, the label did not use the same units as what was um, on the prescription. So something had changed on the way. So for those, for example, that had ML only, you can see 40% of the time they stayed the same which is great, 50% of the time the labels had been changed by the pharmacy, two teaspoons, because someone thought that the patient would understand it better if it was in teaspoons, and then about 10% of the time they added teaspoons to the label. And that's, you know, it's within the purview of the pharmacist to be able to make those kinds of changes um, by state law. Um, what was also interesting is that we found that parents who used teaspoon and tablespoon uh, units um, to, to describe their dose, they had a two-fold increased odds of making a dosing error compared to those who used ML only. And we found that the relationships were stronger for those with low health literacy and non-English speakers. So that shows that those groups might particularly benefit from going to a more simplified ML only system. We also found that there was still a significant percentage using kitchen spoons, and those who used uh, teaspoon and tablespoon units had a much um, increased odds of uh, actually choosing to use a kitchen spoon to measure. So in 2015, the AAP policy statement came out on metric units, um, and they cited our evidence um, in uh, supporting a move towards moving to milliliter units only um, to avoid teaspoon and tablespoons. Um, they also had some recommendations around dosing tools um, that uh, we should be providing uh, tools to our patients um, to be distributed with all medications. As part of this, the Safer Rex for Kids study that I mentioned earlier, um, the NIH-funded study, we also um, were able to look at this issue of units. And uh, I just wanted to show you, you know, we had to come up with a study to try to test, you know, uh, what the implications are of teaspoon units. We randomized people to multiple different groups um, that had uh, different combinations of units on the label versus on the dosing tool. Um, and then we assessed for um, two big out outcomes. One was the preferences for tool use as well as um, dosing error. And we had parents dose with a range of dosing, uh, dosing, dosing tools and measured uh, three different amounts. And uh, I just want to show you some of our results with that. So we confirmed that when the label had teaspoon or TSP on it, that about 30% of the time they were choosing to use a kitchen spoon. 
um, versus with ML only, they're much less likely to say that they would want to do that. And that was a fourfold uh, uh, increased odds. What was even more interesting is that the way that the units were spelled out, so if teaspoon was actually spelled out, there's actually a five-fold increased odds that they'd choose a kitchen spoon. So people are very concrete. So when you spell out teaspoon, they're thinking a teaspoon, they're going to reach for a, a teaspoon. With units, um, this is with our first experiment um, with over 2,000 families. We didn't really see as, as much of an impact of units, actually, which is interesting. But this is within our experimental study with all standardized tools, et cetera. Um, so teaspoon-only um, labels were associated with slightly increased odds of error. And then we followed this up with a second experiment where we tried to dive into this even more. And um, we looked at um, MLTSP labels and MLTSP tools. So we looked at at least it was matching um, versus ML only labels and tools to look at any differences. And here we saw um, a 1.3 a fold increased odds of error with MLTSP and then large errors, 2.4 fold increased odds of large error with the MLTSP labels. So this clearly supports a move to ML only. So a lot of uh, groups have now come on board with ML only, and I'm hoping that you will also buy into it. I know there's some resistance from providers out there, um, but uh, it's exciting that we're going to hopefully move towards a standard, more simplified system for all our patients. So briefly about labeling, um, like I mentioned, uh, there, you know, about a decade ago, there was this increased focus on prescription labeling, how um, there's this lack of standardization of labels. I presented some of the results there. There was an Institute of Medicine workshop on standardizing medication labels, an American College of Physicians white paper came out, um, even the U.S. Pharmacopeia actually came out and finally gave us some recommendations about what uh, the labels should look like, how to make them patient-centered, um, uh, et, et cetera. Even a universal medication schedule uh, was proposed, and some of you may have heard of this. Um, UMS schedule basically puts um, uh, translates things like give something three times a day into actual time frame. So give it in the morning, give it at noon, give it in the evening, et cetera. Um, and uh, that uh, seems to help that patients really understand how to execute the instructions. You can see an example of a label here where they chunk all that information into one panel and try to visually um, uh, make it so that people can understand these, these instructions better. Pediatric-specific issues were not addressed, however, and one way to address these pediatric issues, especially around dosing tools, was thinking, trying to think about the role of pictograms. And so as part of our SafeRx study that I mentioned earlier, um, we were also able to look at pictograms. So we looked at um, uh, adding a flap, so trying to incorporate some of the UMS features, but add this flap um, to see if that would help people dose better. And indeed, it did. So those who got um, text plus pictogram uh, labels had uh, fewer errors than those who got text, uh, sorry, had fewer errors than those who got text-only instructions, so it was a two-fold difference. And we're in the midst now of doing uh, uh, the second phase of the study where we're doing this in the real world. So those were experiments before, now we're doing this where we're randomizing patients to either get our labels um, when they go home versus uh, uh, standard care. I'm going to talk a little bit about OTCs um, because this is a very common issue um, that uh, parents are get, taking OTC medicines on their own, and that's a time where their own health literacy skills becomes uh, particularly important. Back when we did that initial survey of all those products, we also did a health literacy uh, assessment of those products, and we found uh, that very few were using pictographic diagrams. Often the front panel didn't have key information like active ingredients, um, and uh, uh, small font size is, is an issue for sure. Um, and we know that parents struggle with these OTC labels, and parents are rep reporting 
greater difficult uh, about 60% reporting difficulty understanding labels, um, and those with lowest health literacy are at the biggest risk. And there are lots of challenges that patients are facing um, on the labels. They have to get information about formulations and concentrations. Um, uh, for example, um, we know that there's different forms of acetaminophen. There's an infant and children's version. That's since uh, uh, been changed, but uh, this was uh, a number of years ago. Um, uh, and then ibuprofen, uh, two times uh, more concentrated, infant and children's. Um, and uh, there's uh, uh, cases where there have been serious harm resulting from confusion with these formulations. And most parents are not even aware about these formulations. The labeling does not help parents make those decisions. Um, and uh, parents often think the children's version is more concentrated, actually, than the infant um, formulation. We did a study where we had um, parents, uh, we enrolled about 300 parents, we gave them a hypothetical scenario, we told the parents, well, um, the doctor told you to give one teaspoon of children's Tylenol acetaminophen, and you have infant acetaminophen at home, we gave them a box, we asked them, would you use this, how much would you measure out, and we found that most parents would use it, about 60% actually by just didn't use the dropper, but just dumped out the bottle into a dosing cup, for example, and about 50% would have overdosed by more than twofold. And we presented some of that data at an FDA advisory committee meeting on acetaminophen back in 2009, and it was at that meeting that the advisory committee voted to go towards one, only one concentration of liquid acetaminophen. And so a lot of manufacturers have followed suit. There's actually a few places that still have infant acetaminophen out there, but mostly those are gone. Um, but there's still infant uh, ibuprofen out there, so something to remember with your patients who are using that. Active ingredients are another area where um, uh, parents get confused. Parents have to figure out if they're giving Tylenol already and they want to give a cough and cold. They want to make sure that those cough and cold medicines don't have acetaminophen. Um, problems with this has been linked to cases of pediatric harm. Um, we did a study um, in a public hospital setting, 300 patients. We presented them with a scenario of, well, you've given Tylenol already. Which of these uh, medications um, are you able to tell um, are, is the one that you can give safely with that medication? And what we found was that only one in three were correct. Um, that was no different from chance alone. Um, and only one in five um, made, the correct choice of, uh, made the correct choice based on this rationale of active ingredients. There were people who were aware of this issue of active ingredients, one in five, um, who actually made the wrong choice. So they were looking for it on the label, and the label did not support them in making the right decision. And parents with low health literacy are much more likely to make an error. Um, Dosing directions are also a source of confusion. Um, I don't think that surprises us. Most parents don't know um, things are uh, that the dosing should be weight-based, um, and uh, they have to look at this chart and figure out which is the right dose, and many parents fail to do that. So there's lots and lots of labeling uh, uh, issues and challenges for parents to navigate. Um, luckily, the FDA is starting to... Um, to think about these kinds of issues more, um, they issued a guidance for container labels um, where they try to focus on what um, information should be included on the principal display panel. They mentioned health literacy issues, which was very um, heartening for those of us working on health literacy research and trying to improve labeling. Um, and uh, there's uh, some funding that I have recently where they're interested in how we can improve things for over-the-counter pediatric cough and cold medications. So we're doing a series of studies now looking at how we can improve labeling around age restriction information, active ingredient information, um, as well as dosing. So this is uh, one way that one of the 
ways we're trying to decide, trying to figure out uh, what can be helpful in parents making age restriction information. So uh, understanding age restriction information, so thinking about warnings, pictograms, et cetera, to see if that can be helpful. For active ingredients, we're thinking about different ways of chunking the information, um, including warnings, et cetera, thinking about font size as part of that picture. For dosing instructions, we're trying to figure out whether pictograms on our uh, over-the-counter products might be helpful and how we can do that with limited real estate um, that's out there. Um, so uh, I'm going to end with some final thoughts. I know we're almost at the hour. Um, bring us back um, to think about what we as providers can do from a health literacy perspective. Um, one thing I always like to say is try to avoid the unnecessary complexity when you're prescribing um, medications. So think about straightforward dosing. If you can give five ml instead of 5.5, why not just go with five? Um, try to limit the number of times per day. Um, give fewer medicines. Um, try to be good about the verbal communication strategies that you're using. So using um, Demonstration is, is very helpful. Doing the teach back, doing the show back is very helpful. Um, this slide I love to always show um, when I'm, um, this is from Mike Wolf's team, um, where they did teach back versus show back and what the difference is. Um, and they did this for just this take two tablets by mouth twice daily instruction, which seems really simple. And almost every, you know, a lot of people can do it. Um, about over 70% of those with low health literacy were correct on teach back. But when you actually have them show back, which is shown in these gray bars here, people are not able to show it back um, because they don't really understand it. They can parrot it back, but they, can't, uh, they, they don't really understand it. So think about if you can incorporate show back, especially um, in higher risk situations. Um, try to use written information to supplement um, your verbal counseling. That can be very helpful for parents to have something to reference at home. Um, and if you can't, write it down, draw pictures. I'm always drawing pictures um, for people. Like, draw a dosing tool out, fill it up. That can be really helpful. Um, measuring devices, like I mentioned, um, give a dosing tool if you can. Think about the size of the tool you're giving. Don't give one that's too small. You don't give one that's too big, um, et cetera. Try to use consistent language, so try to stick with ML only and avoid teaspoon and tablespoon. Um, be aware of some of the potential pitfalls, especially with OTC products and issues around multiple formulations and active ingredients. And finally, we always recommend a universal precautions approach, like, like we do with hand washing. Try to use these universal communications approaches with all your patients, not just those that you think have low health literacy. So um, I hope that this was interesting for you and that you can think about this in the context of the patient. Um, and also, if you're not someone who's uh, involved in prescribing lots of medications, you can think about how health literacy affects your usual practice. I know that... Um, you know, I'm working on uh, issues around communication, around obesity prevention messaging in the first few years of life, um, using health literacy uh, uh, best principles. Um, I'm working on asthma as well. There's lots of areas that you can work on in your own individual fields um, that might benefit from a health literacy perspective, um, and I hope that this might inspire you to do that. So lots of acknowledgments of people from my team and funding sources. Um, and. Uh, I, I would love to take any questions that people have in the audience. Hi, thanks for coming. That was super interesting. I'm a um, primary pediatrician, outpatient, and also mother of four small children who could conceivably like consume a whole pharmacy with how much illness we have going around, but don't, because I would say like my first comment is I feel like our role as pediatricians is to tell parents that they don't need these medicines. Um, I mean, these cough and cold, none of them work. 
Tylenol probably to bring the fever down is actually detrimental, not helpful, you know, like unless they have a high and comfortable fever. Like mm -hmm. I feel like most parents overuse medicine 90% of the time, you know, we're giving them things that they don't need. And then my question to you though was when they're looking at things being given incorrectly, were you actually watching them just draw it up or were they also administering it? Because the cup, in addition to being hard to read, is also super hard to get the child to take the whole thing. And the syringes, are they cleaning it in between? Because now you're giving, <laughs> you've put it into the sick kid's mouth, the seven you know, ml that they need, they have to get the two more and the five ml dropper, and now they're sticking it back in there. So did you watch it in reality, like that they were giving it to you know, a child or a mannequin or something to see how they actually did it? Those are, those are great questions. So the first question is definitely a good point, that a lot of times parents shouldn't be taking medications to, to begin with. And so I think there are some health literacy challenges there. How do you communicate that effectively to parents that they don't need the cough and cold medicine, that there are other, you know, that, that you know, it's, it could be detrimental. So um, I think that's going to take a, a huge culture shift also, you know, uh, uh, to um, these parents are kind of at their wit's end a lot of times, and they, they want something, and then we as providers are stressed because they want you to give them something. Um, so, I mean, that's definitely a challenge. Um, in terms of the um, how do we measure the medicines and how are they giving it, um, so we... Um, we don't have them actually administer it. You can imagine that that could cause all sorts of IRB issues. Um, they don't want you to actually administer um, the medicine. Um, we, we use a standardized medication bottle. We have, um, you know, uh, dosing tools that, that um, you know, we, we use as part of the assessments. Um, but I agree that there are additional issues beyond just the measuring, so the actual administering. So it's but the, exactly there's other more it's errors. Like the mm -hmm. There's maybe not all of it. You know, it greases up the side of the cup, and so it's not all coming out. Maybe there was a bubble in the syringe, and they didn't notice, and they gave an ml less. Like I think it's there's a hundred other ways that. Yeah, there's lots of places where errors can happen for sure. And, and I think I, one thing I didn't say was, you know, when you're looking at the dosing errors, you know, maybe one time, it's not such a big deal. They're 20% deviation, you know, who cares? Um, or if they give it even tw twofold one time, who cares? But I think we worry when this is a pattern of behavior that they don't know how to give it and then they keep overdosing it multiple times over a long period of time, and that can be um, where it's dangerous. So we're really trying to promote, like, best under parent understanding of uh, how to, give the medicines correctly for all medicines and, and at every time that they're giving the medicine. Um, so that way we can reduce the errors as much as we can. So. So, uh, in, our, in our department, pediatric hemoglobin, we actually cannot get Medicaid to pay for compounding of medication. So we are forced to give our kids tablets all the time. Um, on one hand, that probably reduces errors because we can say give one tablet every other day or one tablet, and we actually fill up their pill boxes too for them. Great. <laughs> but it, and, and it doesn't contaminate the entire bottle, probably. <laughs> Is there any studies that show for the kids that have the choice between liquid and pill that we should just be using pills? Or tablets? I don't think that there has been a study of that, and that would be interesting to, to, um, to think about. I mean, I've... Uh, I know people are, are thinking about how can we make uh, uh, go move away from liquid medicines and and think about uh, you know meltaways and chewables and you know can we move towards all tablets and that sort of thing. Um, so I think that's a good area to to research. I mean I don't think that many people have looked at the Im implications of I mean because that's complicated too having to crush your pills and 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 
suspend them and, and what happens there. So. Thank you for, for a great talk. So I'm a general pediatrician, and, and one of the things that I worry about when I'm in a room and I'm counseling and giving a manifestation and I'm going through the dosing and how to measure it and the timing and I give the parameters, one of the things I worry about is that this is not necessarily the person who's going to be administering the medication. Because there are multiple caregivers within a household. Many of my patients, um, it might be an aunt, it might be a grandmother, it might be a split family, and they'll be with the dad over the weekend. And so, you know, the, the guidance needs not just, just to be durable, it needs to be transitive. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering about what your thoughts are about that and what the potential role of technology might be. Mm -hmm. In terms of a patient, something you can go on a patient portal or on a website, which might be visible to people in different households and be able to go beyond the exam room. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's that's a really good point that there are often multiple caregivers, and so when I'm sometimes when I'm doing teach back, I, I use that as part of my teach back. Is I know that so and so is also going to be giving the medication. How are you going to teach that person? So the teach back is also to make sure that they can teach it to someone else. Um, but we are exploring uh, technology sorts of approaches. Um, so if uh, we could, um, you know, once they get the medication prescribed, if we could send them a. Uh, you know, a link to a video that could show them you know, how much to draw up the medicine, et cetera, that that could be shared with a caregiver um, likely more accurately, potentially, than, than if the, the parent was the one doing it. So, yeah, we, we, we definitely want to do that. We're, we're actually doing that with the asthma action, our asthma action plan. The low literacy one has links to video. Um, and so uh, we, we emailed them a link to, uh, to be able to access their um, their action plan and the videos and share that with caregivers. So I think that that's definitely a, a good a good area to focus on. I have a, I'm very troubled by the presentation. And what I'm troubled by is that it seems to me like we're blaming the victim again. The victim being poorly educated parents, physicians who basically, you know, the medical world is made up of small independent practices and trying to communicate to all of those physicians and healthcare providers how to do it correctly is very difficult. And I would suggest that uh, we might think about how to take the, the Coop Institute's message, which Jim, you, you spoke about, the corporate responsibility. Can you imagine what would happen if a couple of drug industries our own hospital and pharmacy provider leadership role, it would be incredibly important. And I think that we as physicians and healthcare providers should add to your list of things we can do. Ask our own pharmacy, how are you dealing with kids? You know, that was mentioned here about the, the pill thing. How are you doing with it? We can do that at home. So my hunch is that this might be framed in another way that might be eventually more productive. Well, I, I hope, thank you for your comment, I appreciate it. Um, I mean, I hope in my presentation I'm not blaming the parents so much as saying that we are not doing a good job as providers um, and we're not setting up our patients to succeed. And so, I, I mean, I, I hope that that's the message because that's always been my intent and I think that's why I brought up the whole intersection of health literacy, uh, the health literacy with the individual and the health system and, and how why I'm presenting it to you guys is, is not to blame the individual, actually. The individual is, 
is, is stuck in a very bad system. And I, I, I hope that this lecture will actually motivate us as providers to try to push for change. Um, and we are seeing changes. So what's really exciting is that like the AAP policy statement on milliliter dosing came out. So that's, I mean, it's a small piece of the pie, but that's something. Um, and I'm, I'm actually. The exciting things about your research is it's actually translated into corporate changes in corporate behavior. So, I mean, to the extent that the you know, drug companies have taken her research and and largely eliminated infant Tylenol drugs, I think that that's that's to me a huge uh, that's impactful. That's yeah. research that's impactful. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm excited about those, that, that people are listening, that, that even with these small research projects, people are, are making like larger scale changes that we're seeing on the store shelves. Um, and so, so, yeah, I definitely don't want to blame the victim. I hope that's not something you're, came, you're come, going away. It, I think it's feeling sim sympathy for what we're putting people through. And it's a huge systems problem. And we have to kind of like whittle away at all the issues. And if we can get the buy-in of industry, um, we are already working on that with the CDC initiative. We can get the buy-in of FDA. We can push from the regulatory sort of side or their guidances side. If we can get their support from the EMR systems like EPIC, who can you know, disseminate things more broadly and make it so that maybe these instruction sheets pop up when everybody um, uh, is prescribing. Um, you know, I think uh, it's, it's a long road um, ahead of us, but we're making progress. I think we have really seen changes in the last decade, so. Thanks for Alan and, and Jim closing the loop back. Um, and um, as, as, as the Dr. Mentor, Dr. Um, Prior, we'll be joining us on the 8th annual Dr. Pediatric Conference, March 1 through 4, on Washington Resort. Sign up and uh, see someone else from NYU, but thank you again, Sean.